Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. After being off for a week due to the President's Day holiday, we return with the CIO strategy snapshot. There is, of course, a lot to discuss with both macro and micro developments. So joining us once again to address these developments, glad to welcome back the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Uh, Jason, great to be back with you here on the podcast. Thank you for dropping by on this Monday morning and looking forward to catching up on a wide range of developments. Welcome back. Good morning, Dan. It's good to be here. Yeah, I think you and I have not actually spoken on this podcast for almost a month now, so good to have you back. Definitely. It's great to be back on the mic with you, Jason. And as mentioned, there is a wide range of developments within the markets, the macro environment to talk about. I think a good starting point, I know last week the UBS Chief Investment Office did release an update to the monthly house view. So can you speak a bit to the changes, bring our listeners, our clients up to speed? Sure. So, you know, in terms of the overall messaging, I think it's relatively steady from what was the prior month. We're still relatively constructive on the overall economic and macro outlook and therefore risk assets overall. Uh, you know, there were a few, I think, adjustments at the margin, I would describe them. Uh, for instance, in our kind of base case scenario for the U.S. economy, we're a little bit more optimistic on, on growth. Already we were saying sort of soft landing. Now, you know, kind of view is that U.S. growth could be around a trend, like 2% or even a little bit higher this year. Uh, that was, you know, a little bit upgrade from where we were when the year began. As a result of that, well, we also have revised our Fed uh, forecast in terms of when they will begin to cut. Uh, we were expecting the Fed to cut uh, four times this year, starting with the May meeting. And now we expect those cuts to begin in June, and there'll be three 25 basis point cuts for, for 75 basis points of, of total, which is now you know in line with the Fed's dot plot of three cuts this year, but also market pricing is, is between three to four cuts overall. As a result of not just a bit better macro, but also the earnings season for Q4 that, that's coming a little bit better than expected, uh, we've helped revise our, our price targets for the S&P 500, premised on a little bit more optimism about the earnings outlook. Uh, given that the Q4 has come in you know, with an, a little bit elevated, the starting point for 2024, therefore, is a little bit higher than we anticipated at the start of the year. Uh, so for the S&P 500, the earnings per share that we expect for the overall index, you know, was $240. Uh, now we expect it to be $245. So primarily because of that reason, uh, we've upgraded our S&P 500 price target for year end, moving it from 5000 to 5200 So a little bit of upside from the current levels, but, you know, obviously not, not a lot given where we are at the moment. In addition to those price target changes to the market overall, there were some sector changes in, in our preferences. We upgraded two sectors, healthcare and industrials, from neutral to most preferred, and that was offset by downgrading two sectors, you know, staples, energy, from most preferred to neutral. Staples and healthcare are kind of you know, defensive-ish sectors, so certainly staples is, so kind of swapping out one defensive sector for another, whereas industrials and energy are both more cyclicals, uh, and you know, sort of kind of swapping those uh, for, for each other. The healthcare has, it's a pretty diverse sector and has some kind of key structural drivers in the healthcare and the pharma space with some of the obesity drugs providing a pretty strong, you know, tailwind. Whereas staples, we felt has gotten a little bit uh, expensive uh, and a shift to maybe consumer spending that could be a bit of drag on, on that sector. Uh, for energy, you know, we think you know, oil prices have a little bit of upside from the current levels, but not enough to justify its outperformance for energy. Whereas industrials, also sort of an eclectic sector, but one that could also benefit from the 
the fact that the manufacturing sector seems to be coming out of, uh, you know, kind of at the mild contraction over the past year and a half. We're seeing an uptick in the ISM index. And similarly, kind of globally, we can see a bit of an uptick as the year goes on, and industrials would be a little bit better positioned for that overall. But by and large, the, the macro view that we have for this year is the U.S. economy growing around trend, you know, plus growth, like of 2% plus growth. Inflation to continue to moderate uh, as the year goes on, and maybe in some fits and starts, as we've already seen with January, but the direction of travel is still for inflation to fall, and the Fed's ultimate to cut rates, and whether it's three or four, Started in June versus May, I think doesn't change the overall kind of you know, combination of, of decent growth, disinflation, and Fed kind of rates, which is a positive environment for, for risk assets. So that's the bottom line from the House View update from last week. Well, Jason, thank you for bringing us up to speed on the updates within the House View. As a follow up, you mentioned that CIO's Fed rate call has changed. Now, with the economy doing well and inflation still above the target, there is some concern that the Fed may have to hike rates again. Uh, Larry Summers being one of the more prominent voices to suggest as such. So, with that in mind, Jason, how likely do you think it is that the Fed will raise rates again? Well, we think it's very unlikely. Uh, and Larry Summers, who got a lot of attention for the comment, also thinks it's quite unlikely. Um, you know, you know, you enough to see in the headline stories uh, about Summers saying Fed might have to hack again, is that he only has a 15% probability of, of that happening. Uh, and given that, you know, you would never, or we would never even have like a 0% chance of it happening, you know, let's say it's 5%. This is not that much different from a 5%. Um, so we would be lower than the 15. But again, even even Summers is not saying this is, you know, even close to likely. Uh, the reality is that the Fed is very unlikely to hike again uh, because they've already indicated they believe monetary policy is in a good place to get inflation to come down towards the, the target. They've talked openly and also in the committee meetings that the next move is rate cuts, and the question is when do those cuts begin? The dot plot projection is for three cuts you know, this year. So for them to switch from that bias, now a bias towards looking to cut rates, something where they don't cut but they actually hike uh, there is a high bar so they'd have to change their view of the dots you know that that could be adjusted at the march meeting but that's at this point time could only maybe go from three to two and that's that's one of the debates in the market um, and they would also then have to change their dots for next year as well so which at this point in time is also for three or four cuts for next year the fed is going to be really reluctant to change that messaging given what they've already kind of said about the policy being sort of in, a, up in an appropriate place. And even to change the dot plot of those projections, you need then also to change in your economic forecast. Meaning growth is you know, not only going to be stronger than they've already expected, but also inflation has to be kind of revised higher and significantly higher with you know, when you take also out you know, rate cuts. So they could just remove the rate cuts this year and, and even next year. Uh, and even with that, you know, you have to assume that the economy is growing faster. Inflation would be even stickier, uh, that they'd actually have to be higher enough to then to justify rate cuts. So that's a pretty dramatic increase or change in the economic forecast, you know, given that to where they already are. So that, again, not a zero probability, but it, it's quite unlikely that when you think about these various steps that they would actually want to do something like another rate hike. Much more likely is that they just you know, sort of change their language around you know, any cuts this year at all, the dot plot ultimately perhaps not in March, maybe June starts to push them out entirely for this year if the economy shows that it's not slowing down at all, inflation has proven to be sticky, and they can just push them up further and further or just to say indefinitely we will keep policy at this, this, these current levels. So it's not a 0% probability, I think 15, as Summers alluded to, is, is too high, 
you know, is it five or ten? I mean, that's you know, then you're just putting some sort of small probability that you know all this happening. But I think the threshold, the steps that we have to get there for another rate hike is is quite high. Much more likely is if there's you know not cuts, it's just a delay of when those cuts happen. Okay, well, thank you, Jason, for the clarification there. I do want to check in on the Q4 earnings season now. Thinking back to last week, perhaps the focal point for the markets was on Wednesday when we saw Nvidia report their Q4 results. What are some of the takeaways from that report? I'm not going to comment specifically on Nvidia, or I'll look for that stock or any other stock specifically. But I think there was a takeaway from Nvidia's earnings report about the overall implications for AI and therefore from, from my perspective for the macro economy. Now, you know, it wasn't something that NVIDIA you know, beat sort of any expectations uh, and, you know, analysts can kind of get into the specific details of where they, you know, did really well. I think the, the main broad takeaway is that, you know, the possibility of an even faster than expected you know, adoption or spending on AI related matters, whether it's sort of the enablers like NVIDIA who are producing these chips that allow uh, other companies to run large language models, or other t- you know, industries that are, are sort of benefiting from this technology. And I think to me, it kind of, it's summed up by NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang, who said on the analyst call that accelerated computing and generative AI have hit the tipping point. Demand is surging worldwide across companies, industries, and nations. Um, so I think if you think about that, that's, that season plan, like we, we've clearly sort of accelerated in a way that you know, was greater than, than we would have thought maybe six months ago, a year ago. Uh, and we can see this being supported by some CapEx data. Uh, you know, for example, Morgan Stanley, is, you know, their analyst is estimating that the 2024 cloud capex could be up 24% year over year. In 23, it was up 5% year over year. This jump from 5 to 24%, that's the highest sort of acceleration in cloud spending on a year over year basis since 2018. Uh, the kind of bottoms up analyst consensus estimates for capex spending for four AI hyperscalers, these are Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and, and Meta imply you know, a 10 or 11% sort of year-over-year growth in their CapEx spending, which is quite significant. Uh, so I think what you're seeing is a ramping up of more than expected in terms of spending on AI-related technologies. Uh, and as that happens, it's also been you know, dispersed across other industries. So to me, the, you know, the big takeaway is this AI story that we know is kind of a growth theme for this decade, the implications of it in terms of how much is spent to get there, but also the implications for the economy this could happen sooner than expected. So anticipating sort of you know, things that could actually materially show up in, in how companies perform, their earnings, or broader economic activity may not be five to 10 years down the line. Maybe it is already two to three years down the line. So that's the, the key takeaway from, you know, from my perspective from the NVIDIA report last week, independent of the company in and of itself, but from a macro perspective. So, Jason, this is actually a nice seg into your recent blog, Goldilocks versus Roaring Twenties, in which you define those terms and then say that last week may mark an inflection point in how investors think about the economy with less talk of Goldilocks and increasingly more of Roaring Twenties. So what exactly do you mean by that? Well, these terms, Goldilocks and Roaring Twenties, they're not conventionally accepted terms in terms of what exactly they mean economically. So there's certainly a bit of an eye of the beholder of how you want to define it. But I think they, the conditions of how you define it, that's what's important more so than the words in and of itself. Um, so to me, Goldilocks is sort of cyclical nirvana. You have strong growth combined with disinflation, and this tends to be kind of a temporary cyclical phenomenon. It can last a few months or quarters, but it's going to ebb as the cycle evolves. You know, Roaring Twenties, as the name implies, you know, it's going to have a multi-year horizon, and it can only really last this long if the economy actually shifts to a structurally higher trend growth rate. 
So in essence, Goldilocks is when disinflationary growth is temporarily above a trend rate, while roaring 20s entrails an actual higher trend rate overall. Uh, that's likely to coincide with disinflation. Now, a lot of people have used you know, the Goldilocks to describe how the U.S. economy has been performing this year and parts of last year. You know, it's how we actually describe our sort of tactical upside scenario for, for this year. Uh, you know, we've also, you know, myself and my team have written other reports elsewhere and asking, you know, could there be another roaring 20s for the U.S. economy? And our conclusion ultimately is that, you know, for that to happen, it hinges on a positive CapEx and AI megatrends, no negative supply shocks elsewhere in the economy, and that could lead to higher productivity. And that would allow the economy to grow faster without generating inflation. That's kind of, you know, to me, the, the, the backdrop of a roaring 20s scenario. Why last week's news could sort of be an inflection point in this narrative is the economy Goldilocks roaring 20s is kind of this AI NVIDIA news in terms of, you know, being accelerating the timeline of one that can be impactful. And that's incrementally adding to what's already been a pretty good news on productivity growth. Uh, with the most recent data we've gotten on labor productivity in the U.S., it shows that it surged you know, over the past year. It grew at 3.2% in Q4, and the five-year rolling average is now 2.1%. This is the highest level it's been in a decade. If you kind of ignore a couple of quarters in 2020 where the data was all distorted because there's mass dislocations in the, in the labor market. Now, everyone would acknowledge that measuring productivity is difficult and forecasting it is even harder. Uh, and there's no guarantee that AI will actually have a material impact the rest of this decade. I mean, a lot of hype, certainly, but we need to see it actually sort of impacting overall work and productivity. But just in general, this combination of where we have right now of a pretty tight labor market that forces companies to be a little more creative of how they get output from their workers, they invest more in, in CapEx as a substitution, and, and, you know, the AI story, they're all directionally, you know, supporting, you know, the productivity surge kind of continuing. You know, and if it does for you know, at least the rest of this year, uh, and then you know, I think the argument that you know this is not a cyclical temporary phenomenon, but we're actually experiencing something that's going kind to of structurally higher trend growth, i.e. the roaring 20s, that sort of narrative will strengthen. And instead of people talking about the economy being in Goldilocks, you know, by the end of this year, there could be more and more talk about um, you know, a roaring 20s environment as we move into like the middle, the midpoint of the decade. And ultimately, if we get a roaring 20s kind of regime or outcome, that's positive you know, medium to long-term for risk assets, it's kind of better than Goldilocks because it's basically Goldilocks for, for a multi-year period. So that's, that's I think, a key thing to watch is this, is these underlying economic trends evolve and that also then influences kind of the overall market economic narrative. So for those who, um, you know, are worried about the markets being at an all-time high, I think there is this sort of economic justification for things to potentially be even going higher, not because of a bubble, because the underlying economic fundamentals you know, warranted. And to me, that's a shifting from a Goldilocks economy to a roaring 20s economy. So, Jason, based on all of these considerations, where do the markets go from here? And what do you recommend as far as investors be doing at this point in the way of asset allocation? Well, the CIO letter this month kind of lays out what we think are four key building blocks for any portfolio at this point in time, given how much the markets moved and given what the outlook is. Uh, you know, and one is, you know, U.S. large cap stocks, which is kind of an obvious thing to say, but, you know, these are the home of the biggest mega cap tech stocks. You know, this is your access to the biggest AI stories out there. A lot of concern, you know, and I mentioned just about talk about potential bubbles uh, or things getting a little bit stretched. But given that AI is kind of a growth theme for this decade, having an allocation, a sizable allocation there is, is important. We know that's true, certainly for our U.S. clients. 
but outside of the U.S., I think a lot of investors are probably underweight and significantly underweight their allocation. They should be to U.S. you know large cap stocks. So that's one kind of you know building block. Another is kind of related. It's diversify your equity exposure, which means other parts aside from U.S. large cap stocks. Um, you know, we see a lot of investors in the U.S. tilt heavily towards those large cap growth stocks, but we see actually good opportunity in small caps in the U.S. Even sort of better, we expect better performance from small cap versus large this year. You know, outside of the U.S., emerging markets equities look you know relatively attractive on a global basis. That's another key thing is to look for other you know diversified equity exposure. The third building block is is quality bonds. You know, at these current yields, where the 10 years around four and a quarter, we think it's kind of at the high end of the range it's going to be in for the time being. With the 10 years sort of ranging maybe from 375 to four and a quarter. Uh, so in this environment, you don't need to take a lot of credit risk to get pretty attractive yield. You can buy, you know, high quality corporate bonds, investment grade corporate bonds, tips, high quality munis. Uh, agency MBS are essentially government guaranteed, and they have attractive spreads and high quality. Uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, like you, know, you can buy AA and higher. Again, those have pretty attractive you know, spreads at this point in time. So quality bonds are a good way to be positioned in your fixed income portfolio. And the final building block is alternatives, um, because you know these can provide both higher returns and also diminish volatility in the portfolio, so you get a smoother overall experience. So those are the building blocks. In terms of the key messages, I've already alluded to one: you know, kind of buy you know quality assets, buy quality bonds. The main change we had in our messages and focus this month was to introduce or maybe say modify an existing message, which was pick leaders from disruption, which we now kind of think of as optimize your tech exposure. Initially, that message was really more geared towards the medium longer term. Again, going back to this idea that AI is a decade long growth theme, but clearly as it's kind of these implications are being pulled forward, it's important to make sure your, your tech exposures have been optimized so you're not too overweight, you know, given how well it's performed, but you're also certainly not underweight. Uh, but then you're not also looking at just those seven, you know, the magnificent seven stocks. You can get, you know, tech exposure indirectly through energy and healthcare tech disruption. There are structured solutions to make sure that you're you're not to be overly exposed to the, those stocks, you know, pulling back. Um, so I think about again how you want to have that tech exposure in your portfolio overall. And just more, you know, tactically from the market's perspective. We're at an all-time high for the S&P 500. It's rallied a lot. Uh, you know, it's up 23% since the end of October, so really sizable move in the course of, you know, four months. And, and already year-to-date, it's up uh, you know, almost um, you know 7%. So on a near-term basis, the market has really been driven certainly last week by the micro news of corporate earnings. Uh, I think now in the next couple of weeks, the focus will again return to macro news, with we get PC inflation on on uh, Thursday. On March 8th, we get February payrolls report. We'll see how wage growth is there, how the job growth is holding up. And then on the 12th, we get CPI. Given that the data has been running on the hot side for, for January, I think the market would actually want to see a bit of moderation there just to give comfort that the Fed will actually be able to you know, kind of cut the three times this year, as we're saying. So from micro back to sort of macro focus in the coming weeks, and after the, give, you know, the big moves we've seen recently, there is certainly scope for I think, the markets to be disappointed if the macro data doesn't come in softer, if it ends up staying hotter. I think that's it's worse if it's hotter for the market than if it's kind of cooler. I think they, you know, the, the market's already kind of pricing in good news. So short term, some scope or potential for volatility in the marketplace. But again, the medium term you know, view for the rest of this year is still relatively constructive on a pretty favorable macro environment overall. 
Well, Jason, thank you very much for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on the CIO Strategy Snapshot to bring them up to speed on CIO's current thinking when it comes to the macro and market environment. And as always, very helpful to hear your guidance when it comes to asset allocation. So as was said at the top, it's great once again to be on the mic with you. Wish you a great week ahead and do look forward to picking back up with our conversation again next week. You're welcome. Have a great week. Thank you, Jason. Again, today we have been speaking with Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Before we close out, I just want to point everyone to a couple of resources which Jason had made reference to this morning. That includes his recent blog, Goldilocks versus Roaring Twenties, the latest UBS House View Investment Strategy Guide. Those resources can now be located up on UBS.com slash CIA. Though for clients of UBS, please be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive copies of those resources directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.